WeChat initially tried to make WeChat a thing overseas. It didn't work. Douyin took a very different approach. It made a sister version of its application. At the fundamental core of it, it is very, very similar to Douyin. And that, of course, has become a huge success overseas. And you best believe, of course, that other Chinese internet companies have been looking at the success of Douyin and TikTok with envy um, and are now starting to create sister versions of their own applications. Hello and welcome to Performance Marketing Unlocked, the podcast from Performance Marketing World. And in this week's episode, we are unlocking the Chinese market. And with us to unlock it, we have Jimmy Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Ping Pong Digital, the award-winning Chinese marketing agency. But before we begin, Robin Langford, editor at PMW, has come into the studio today to tell us a bit more about the content from the last week on PMW and its APAC focus. So what's happened on PMW in the last week? Well, um, we've had quite a bit of a focus on APAC, as you've mentioned, because it is coming up to that biggest shopping day of the year, which is not Christmas. It's not Prime Day. It is not Black Friday. It is Singles Day in China, which has expanded to loads of not just the Asian region, but also um, many Western markets. It's a huge day in the shopping calendar, but why, why is it called Singles Day? Um, it's actually kind of the anti-Valentine's Day. It's a manufactured holiday um, by uh, the e-commerce giant Alibaba. I can't remember when it was actually founded, but it was a, it was a while ago now. But it's, it's, it's the 11th of November, so it's all ones, one, 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 one. Um, and it's a celebration of being single and just splurging and treating yourself, really. Well, sounds like my kind of holiday. Big fan of treating yourself. But... If we take a deeper dive into some of our special features on APAC, what can we have a closer look at? Sure, we look at a lot of different markets. We look at New Zealand, we look at um, South Korea, which is uh, one of the most commercially developed countries uh, in the world. Uh, so much so that they've, they've got their, you may have noticed this, they've got Metaverse Seoul, uh, which is an entire city based in the Metaverse. But they, they don't go on there to play games, they go on there to pay their taxes and have like do their civic duties and things there, which is, sounds a bit boring, but um, it might be a little <laughs> glimpse into the future for us. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, Jimmy Robinson was saying that the attitudes towards tech in China and other Asian countries is so much more welcoming of it. 80% of shopping is done online in the US. But in China, 100% of all shopping is done online. It's all online transactions, which just shows you where the world is going and where other countries may or may not follow. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm increasingly doing most of my shopping online as well. Um, that's where you'll find me at Christmas, just like shopping on, online. Um, and I think a lot of people are going that way. There's things also, that, trends that sparked in, in Asia that we are sort of taking up, things like live shopping, esports and e-gaming is something that's massive over there that's becoming big in Western markets as well. Um, we also crave things like fast fashion from Xi'an that's become a big thing over here. So there's a lot of things that come from there that, that we are using. And famously, um, the, one of the biggest fans of, of trends over there is, is, is our... Uh, for our friend Elon Musk, who um, teamed up with Linda Yasharino, that's the reason he really wants uh, our credit card details now, because he's trying to emulate uh, WeChat, which is one of the most successful apps in, in China and in Asia, um, with 1.6 billion users now. And what WeChat's managed to do over there is become a, a, the super app, or, or more a better way of describing it is the everything app, where you do everything on it. So you don't just use it like we would use our WhatsApp to chat with people. 
Uh, they use it to book their airline tickets. They use it to book taxis. They use it to uh, do their shopping. They use it to book cinema tickets. And that's what Musk is really trying to do. He's really trying to get uh, a known audience and he's trying to get your credit card deets. And there's a strong performance marketing aspect to that because that known audience is incredibly powerful. It's not just getting people's like leads and clicks. You know, oh, There's something a lot more powerful about a sale, you know, you know they like you if they're giving you your money as opposed to just casually liking something on TikTok or whatever. <laughs> um, so that's what he's really trying to do. Whether they'll be successful or not is, is remains to be seen in the Western markets. And we will hear more about Elon Musk, WeChat, as well as the three other major platforms in China, Doyen, Weibo and Red. Awesome. Yeah, Jimmy's interview is fantastic. It's really useful for anyone that's either in the market or looking to APAC, and it really should be in your marketing plans for the golden quarter this year. So so let's have a listen. Hello, Jimmy. Welcome to the studio. How are you doing? Hello, Lucy. I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. Thanks uh, so much for having me. So you founded Ping Pong Digital just 10 years ago. It passed its 10-year birthday, I believe, um, a couple of months ago. And... The questions that you were answering then around how Western brands can unlock or break into the Chinese market are probably quite similar then as they are now in some way, would you agree? Why do you think people are still asking the same questions? I think there's a lot of mystery um, that still exists around China. Ten years ago, um, the mystery was this brand new marketplace that's just kind of emerging, right? And there was a lot of kind of like excitement around, um, you know, the, the potential opportunity, I guess, that existed within mm. China. And uh, back at that time, you know, if you especially if you're looking at the digital world in China, you've got uh, your Facebook equivalent, right? There was an Instagram equivalent. Any Western application or digital infrastructure that we were used to using here, there was kind of an equivalent out in China. That over the last 10 years has continued to evolve and change in ways um, that bears very little resemblance to the digital ecosystem that existed 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so because of this, that intrigue around China has just continued. The mystery um, is still there. So we are forever constantly answering new questions um, that China creates for us. And so that's why I think there's still so much interest and so many and unleft answers, I guess, when it comes to China. Well, that is exactly what we're trying to do today, uh, to provide a bit of clarity and a bit of a bit of insight, as your, your podcast actually is named, isn't it? Insight China. Um, indeed, yes. Indeed, yeah, from Ping Pong Digital itself. And yes, yeah, so in the next 25 minutes or so, we will be unlocking this for our audience. But the first question I'd like to pose to you is, out of all the questions that you are asked and the busy day that you have working with all the myriad platforms that occur in China, what's really getting your attention in your day-to-day -day at the moment? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> is, uh, I, I mean, again, with, with China, there's always so much um, going on. I, I think one of the, 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 the biggest things um, that is quite exciting, actually, that's happening in China right now uh, is surrounding social commerce. And I think this is something that we're starting to understand a little bit more um, in the West now. And we're starting to see social commerce integrate itself into a few different applications. You know, you can think of like that Instagram example where they had like, you know, some kind of like shop function or things like that. 
The way in which social commerce has been integrated in China, however, is so different um, to how it's been you know, tested, I guess, in the West, that this is still one area that is so new in the West, but it's already quite well matured out in China. If you look at just from 2018 to 2021, there was it was 1,700% growth in social commerce in China. It absolutely exploded just before uh, COVID happened, but especially during COVID as well. And so because of this, it's matured um, at such a rapid pace that it's almost become one of the new standard ways for consumers in China to, you know, discover new products and purchase new products. Um, And I think that's one of the things at the moment that really captures uh, my interest. I mean, we're going to get deeper into this later on in the podcast, but it is one of the biggest differences between the way we shop for products and even search through content. I mean, I know TikTok attempted to start something in the UK and in the US and Europe, but it wasn't as successful because... We're just not quite ready for it. It's far more advanced in China um, and some of the other countries in APAC as well. But to understand a little bit more about what we're talking about, please could you talk us through the, the main apps that are used by the Chinese market and how they are used? Sure. So the way in which the China internet um, infrastructure, I guess, is is structured um, is quite different from that of the West. Um, the majority of the majority of netizens in China, the way that they inter- interact, I guess, with uh, the internet in China is predominantly through applications. So it's going to be through mobile phones. Um, it's through applications. And because of that, there's always like a social element to the way in which consumers in China are going to be interacting with the internet. Now, when you look at all of the app infrastructure that exists out in China, it is, of course, completely different um, to, to that of the West, right? Um, most of the applications that we're used to using in the West are blocked in China. We have the Great Firewall that prevents access. So we have a completely different digital ecosystem that exists out there. And it can be mind-boggling for consumers or anybody, actually, to try and navigate through this. We have a bit of a cheat sheet. So we say that there are four main applications that everybody should know about when it comes to China. That's Weibo, which is kind of like your Twitter of of, of China. Um, It's quite often pronounced Weibo, if, if people are more familiar with that pronunciation. You have WeChat, that I don't think needs much of an introduction. Um, We have Douyin. Douyin, for those who don't know, is actually TikTok. Um, So TikTok has a sister application that exists out in China. Um, And a fun fact for everybody, when you look at the TikTok logo, the reason why it looks like a D is because of its Chinese pronunciation, Douyin. I'd so, never yeah. thought about that. I'd never made the connection. I actually always thought it was a there music note. Yes, <laughs> it, I mean, it kind of is as well, um, but it's also a play on that D from the Douyin pronunciation. So for the next pub quiz, now you mm. know. Um, <laughs> so Douyin, the third biggest application, of course, again, you know, TikTok, not, not much of a, an introduction is needed as to why this is an application that you need to know. Um, and the fourth application is Red. Um, often called Little Red Book. In Chinese, it's a Xiaohongshu. Um, that is the fourth big internet application uh, that everybody really should be familiar with now if you're looking at entering the China market. Mm. Fantastic. And 
I mean, that's just, you know, given us a brief overview of some of the biggest platforms that um, are used by the China market. And obviously they are they are founded in China, um, but are they used across the globe as well by um, Chinese residents living everywhere? Yes. So there's two two interesting parts, uh, I guess, to this. Regardless of where Chinese citizens or netizens will say uh, travel around the world, um, they are still going to be using their own internet infrastructure. So they are still used to using uh, apps like Xiaohongshu. They will, of course, still be using WeChat. Um, it's the same as imagine taking um, you know, you out of your home country, sending you somewhere else, and now you're not going to use Instagram anymore, for example. You know, of course, you're going to still use the applications that you're so familiar using with that most of your friends are still going to be using with. And it's just become like you know, one of the most habitual apps or activities that you use um, when interacting um, with the internet or you know through, through, through various different social channels. So yes, Chinese netizens are still using these applications where, wherever they are in the world, essentially. One of the interesting things that we've been seeing, though, is the adoption of other users to these applications as well. So if we take just, for example, obviously the Douyin TikTok analogy here, rather than trying, China trying to force almost, you know, like a, one of its home applications on an international market, they basically took an application that was very successful and made a version of that that worked very, very successfully, of course, overseas. WeChat initially tried to make WeChat a thing overseas. It didn't work. Um, Douyin took a very different approach. It made a sister version of its application. At the fundamental core of it, it is very, very similar to Douyin. And that, of course, has become a huge success overseas. And you best believe, of course, that other Chinese internet companies have been looking at the mm. success of Douyin and TikTok with envy um, and are now starting to create sister versions of their own applications. And I think we're one of the ones that we're really interested in right now is uh, Red in particular, so Little Red Book, um, who are very proactively looking at launching a sister version of this application out in the West. It's kind of like an Etsy and a Pinterest as an application, yes. like combined into one. Um, very influencer-driven um, and it's exploded. It's massive in China. And I suspect that over the next 12 months, we're probably going to find another version of that that will exist overseas as well. So we might not see the exact same applications overseas, but we're going to see some of the fundamental technologies and uses of these applications starting to make inroads um, in overseas markets as well. I mean, yes, I think all social platforms seem to steal bits and bobs from each other, don't they? I mean, we know very famously that Elon Musk has been trying to set up his own WeChat in some way or another. Whether he has any success or not is anyone's guess, I think, at this point. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll wait and see on that. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not I know. So sure. We were talking today, actually, he just... If anything, he's a hilarious man because he just makes us laugh at the kind of odd but bizarre and oh, I don't know. How how would you describe he, his embarks? He he said something before. I think it was on his, um, he did a Saturday, Saturday Night Live. He hosted it. And at the beginning of it, he said, you know, I'm a guy who reinvented uh, the car. I'm trying to, I've, I've reinvented space travel and I'm trying to set up a colony on Mars. And he said, and you think that I'm a normal chilled guy? And I was like, that's, yes, of course, you're not, you're not a normal chilled person <laughs> at all. You see the world so different from the rest of us um, mm. that, you know, the quirky craziness, I guess, 
that surrounds him. Um, we've been able to benefit from some ways with this, but it's he's still going to continue to be a quirky, interesting character, I think. Yes. Uh, that, that won't be changing. Oh, never, never changing. But also, he gets far too much airtime on this podcast. I don't know why he always ends up creeping in some way or another. So, <laughs> let's move on. Let's we'll move, move on, on. Move we'll on, move on, move on. We're done. <laughs> I'd like to also out in light of the apps that you just described and how they're used what are the some of the main attitude differences and culture towards e-commerce between Chinese and Western markets I think that um, e-commerce in China um, is just more deeply integrated into everyday life out in China. If we're looking at, you know, some of the big major social platforms over the last few years, because of this rise in social commerce, um, every single social application that you can think of in China has now integrated a form of e-commerce into their applications. And this is a lot easier for them to do than it is in the West. One of the main reasons for this is from a payment standpoint. Payments in China are all digital. If you're looking at just the US, for example, only about 80% of consumers in the United States make purchases online. So only 80% of the population has the ability um, to be able to go online and check out online. In China, that's 100%. Because if you don't have a digital wallet, you can't purchase anything in China now. You will have a 90-year-old grandma who is going to the food market and she's going to be using WeChat Pay or Alipay in order to make a purchase because she can't actually use cash anymore. And that's one big key differentiator there because it's so easy for everybody to access um, or I should say so easy for everybody to check out using their digital wallets. It's just so much easier um, for that to be integrated seamlessly into everyday life out in China now. So that's one, I think, big key differentiator between the two. I think another key difference as well is that Chinese consumers are far more willing to try out new technologies and to jump onto new e-commerce trends. I know that, you know, if I think just even of my mum, for example, um, you know, my mum gets very nervous about putting her credit card information um, on a website. And that's even a very well-known website. Um, you know, she would much prefer to just pay with cash or pay in person using her card. Whereas in China, you will have people who will be very quick to adopt new kinds of online payment methods um, and to try out brand new e-commerce platforms. Um, there's a lot less brand loyalty when it comes to, I must only shop on Amazon, for example. People are much more willing um, to adopt to these new kinds of, of platforms. I mean, and this must. This is why you get so many questions coming to you, and very basic questions about the Chinese market because it's just so completely different, worlds apart, literally, um, to the way that we interact with our technologies, like you said. Um, and because of this, what when uh, brands come to you and say, "Look, I want to, I want to break into China and access the Chinese market," what are the biggest misconceptions that they have? What are the biggest mistakes or what do they overlook? I think the biggest issue um, is that everybody assumes that China is a monolith. 
So everybody just assumes that there is only one China. And that if I want to go after, you know, like Gen Z consumers, for example, in China, that that's it, right? Um, They don't realize that China, you know, just geographically, if we're looking at it, it's the same as Europe. Um, from a geographic standpoint, in fact, slightly larger um, than Europe, um, with a population of 1.4 billion people. You know, if if you go to um, the north of China, um, people are going to be eating uh, noodles. If you go to the south of China, people are going to be eating rice. Um, The consumption, the attitude and the behaviors of consumers even around China is is very, very different. Um, That big misconception is, oh, China is the same. The majority, I think, of Westerners or we'll just say non-Chinese, who go to China are typically going to be entering a city like Shanghai. And one of the biggest issues that we find um, when we're talking to businesses is that they have something called the Shanghai fallacy, which is that they believe that when they go to Shanghai, that Shanghai is a representation of the rest of China. And they don't realize that Shanghai is quite unique in China. Um, It's a very international city. You'll have a a marketing director, they go out to Shanghai, they see a consumer um, wearing, uh, you know, the latest uh, Lululemon uh, collection that's just dropped. They're holding their Starbucks, using their iPhone, um, and listening to music on their Beats headphones. And they look at that, and they see that exact same individual in their home markets. And so the assumption is made that, my gosh, Chinese consumers are the same now as consumers in my home market. So the strategies, the messaging, uh, the visuals that we use in our home market should work perfectly for this consumer as well, because look at them. They look and act the same as my home market demographics. And that is the biggest mistake I think the brands often make. And you always hear of so many uh, stories of brands who failed um, to enter into China because they fail to localize and adapt um, their materials, not only to just, you know, talk about uh, Gen Z consumers in China, but also failing to recognize that a consumer in Chengdu is going to be different to a consumer in Beijing, who will be different to a consumer in Shanghai. And that's one of the other key things that uh, brands need to understand when it comes to China. I mean, absolutely. I mean, like you said, you know, geographically, but also, you know, the population of 1.4 billion. I mean, that's several countries worth of people there, isn't there? It's that that it's huge amounts of difference must exist within uh, that that you know that number alone. And so, let's. I'd love to hear about um, a success story. Then, can you talk us through a brand's successful inception into the Chinese market from someone that wasn't initially in it, and then? with a proper strategy, nailed it. I've done a name drop here, um, or I planted <laughs> a seed of the case study that I'm going to give an example of, which is Lululemon. Oh. Um, <laughs> see what I did there? I was going to try and guess it for a second, but... <laughs> <laughs> I sh- I, sorry, I should have let you do that. <laughs> oh, well, let's, let's redo it again. I, I can read. Should we redo it again? Let's do it. Do let's that. do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I name dropped a brand earlier, Lucy. I'm not <gasps> sure if you'll be able to guess which brand it was. Um... That's the case that I'm going to give you. Have a is think. It, let me think. Out of the brands, you've mentioned Beats. You've mentioned, is it Lululemon? Well done. <laughs> yes, you nailed it. Um, there we go. Yes, Lululemon. 
um, is the case that I wanted to talk about because I think they've done such a great job in China um, over the last uh, 10 years. So they've only been in China for 10 years, actually. So it's, it's relatively recent. It's within recent memory for most of us. Um, you know, they've entered the market you know, shortly after WeChat became a thing and, um, you know, the whole modernization, I guess, of the internet and digital infrastructure um, in China. So it's a really, really nice case study example. Um, if we're looking at why they've been so successful in China, they've really been tapping into local trends um, that have been taking place. So we know that Lululemon did very well um, during COVID in the West, for example. There was this whole trend towards athleisure wear and loungewear and things like that. And we're seeing now that, you know, post this, Lululemon has got to change their strategy a little bit because... You know, this whole um, just staying at home and sitting in something comfortable anymore is not working out. They've got to be a bit more fashionable um, in, in terms of the products that they're offering. In China, they really, really heavily leaned into that 996 burnout culture. And this has been a desire in China for consumers to kind of take life a little bit slower, be a little bit more relaxed, um, because... Life in China can, can be a lot, and especially the working culture in China is very, very, very intense. So Lululemon very, very quickly associated themselves with general wellness across, uh, you know, across the board, really. And in store, they've done this in uh, their home markets as well. But in China, they also started to offer um, free uh, in-store classes. Um, they utilized a lot of local KOLs in particular. Um, when they were offering these free in-store classes. For our listeners that might not know, K KOLs uh, um, are what we might call influencers. Is that correct? Yes. Sorry, I should clarify that. So KOLs, um, that stands for Key Opinion Leader. Um, those are your like more like, I guess, large scale um, influencers in China. You then have KOCs, Key Opinion Consumers, and KOS, Key Opinion Sales. Um, and everything's always KO um, in, <laughs> in China um, when it comes to this. So for the influencers, so utilizing local influencers um, in China in order to get them into the store, take advantage of the free classes that they've been offering. Um, and the marketing strategies have really been focusing on kind of like this super girl persona, um, you know, saying that you as a, you know, a, a young female can really succeed, I guess, um, in, in life, in the workplace, by making sure that you take better care um, of your own mental well-being and your general wellness as a whole. And they've really, really fed into this. They've also been making sure that they're incorporating um, local celebrities, local athletes, um, local influences in the majority of the campaigns that they're pushing out into China. If you look at a campaign from Lululemon in China, the majority of the faces that you're going to see are going to be local sports people um, and local celebrities. You'll get about 10, 20% that will be non-Chinese. You look at the majority of other brands in China and they typically go the other way around where the majority of influencers that they're using or celebrities' faces that they're using are going to be the non-Chinese celebrities because because they're probably the ones that cost them more money. So they're now just going to roll those into their China campaigns. So that localization aspect um, across the board in China from Lululemon has really resonated with consumers. So much so that I think it's 70, 
they saw a 79% uptake, I think, in sales um, in the first quarter of this year, which far exceeded any other marketplace um, because they've been so focused on this approach um, in the market. Not only that, but also the date, the fashion. So they've been localizing um, the products themselves. They've started releasing uh, like those down jackets. I don't know if you've if anyone's been to China, especially in the colder months, you know, those big puffer jackets um, that have those like rolls um, mm. on them, they're everywhere. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're part of the local culture and the local fashion. And so Lululemon has been leaning into that as well by producing a lot more products that feed into some of the local fashion trends, these local down jackets, for example. Um, and then just, just their general holistic approach to community building um, and jumping on. The, the latest trends um, has just been quite admirable, actually. They've done such a good job of really localizing and adapting the product to that marketplace, but without losing who they are at the very core um, of themselves as a brand. Wow, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for walking us through all of that. I mean, Lululemon, I mean, I know it personally is such, such a success because you know they've, they've hit gold when you... Um... You don't have to refer to what it even is. You say, oh, are you wearing your Lululemons? You, you know you've succeeded there. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's one brand's successful inception. It's now time to test you, Jimmy. We have come oh, to gosh. the end of the podcast and it's the PMW world-renowned Resell Me A Pen Challenge. How are you feeling? Um, I would say that I'm I, I'm relatively confident. Uh, mm. I, or I should I should be more American about it, shouldn't I? And I should say I'm absolutely going to nail this. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, Bring like, the New York for, over here. Yeah. That that's it, indeed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say that it's been very aptly um, chosen for you because we were talking earlier about how um, in China everything's digital and mobile first. Even your 85-year-old grandma is going to be paying with her phone and your item that has been selected for you by our previous guest, Visha Kadale, is a Nokia 5146. Are we excited about selling this for us today? Very much so. I, I was a user <laughs> of this phone as well. I remember it fondly. So <laughs> very excited to convince everybody else to go out and get one. <laughs> well, Jimmy, when you are ready, please sell me a Nokia 5146. Can you can you hear that? It's the sound, I think, of an Instagram notification, or, or was it an email ping, or, or was it a notification from that app that I forgot I downloaded? Oh no no no! I think it's a friend who sent me yet another game invite request. In a world of constant distractions, we are told that we need yet another application to try and bring us some peace and provide a digital detox. But what if I told you that I had a solution? No gimmicks, no distractions, a phone that just works. The Nokia 5146. This is a product that will appeal to not only Gen Z and millennials who are fed up with the constant distractions of modern day life, and of course for older audiences, it is a throwback to simpler times. Snake can be made cool once again through the FOMO effect. Um, who would not want to play um, a game like Snake? Oh no, have I already finished? Boy, am I impressed. I mean, you've really <laughs> sold to the right audience here because I'm, I mean, I've got, we have all of our phones around us and I keep them on silent all the time because I'm just fed up of hearing um, all the notifications, all the different apps that I apparently need to be able to live my life. 
and oh, the simplicity of it would just be peaceful, wouldn't it? Indeed, right? Mm. We're always told about these digital detox and I get ads fed to me constantly saying, use this application to focus more or all of these other things. Mm. And I'm like, well, maybe I just don't need to use this phone and mm. then I wouldn't have all the constant distractions. So I seriously have considered uh, getting one for myself mm. as well. I, I may bite the bullet and just do it. Let's all do it. Let, let's search why and buy ourselves a Nokia 5146 because Jimmy, you have indeed resold me the Nokia. You've Past the challenge. I, I'm so pleased to hear it. <laughs> I can't wait for us all to do um, a new TikTok challenge. Can you survive a week with the Nokia 5146? I can see it now. So. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I think I might start. I was going to say tomorrow, maybe on Monday. <laughs> maybe maybe yes. a bit later. Well, <laughs> Jimmy, what have you chosen for our next guest to resell? So I've chosen something that, especially with me being here in the US, I find quite challenging to sell people on, and it is Eurovision. Oh, that is a brilliant, brilliant challenge. I like yes. that a lot. I mean, it's um, we actually had a Eurovision special last year, but we didn't do one this year. But yeah, what's it like in the US? Are they as uh, Eurovision crazy, or is it? do they not even know what it is? Honestly, the, the amount of people who have never even heard of this uh, is, is quite surprising. The funny thing is they know some of the songs. So if I play for people some big Eurovision hits, they're like, oh, I know mm. this song. And I'm like, yes, that's Eurovision. Have you heard of ABBA? Eurovision. Have you heard of Celine Dion? Eurovision. Eurovision. <laughs> like, like, yes. So, you know, mm. the, those, are, those are a few things that I think the next guest could potentially use as well to, to, to sell Eurovision to everybody. Oh, yeah. You're, 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 you're giving them tips now. You're just helping them I'm, out. Too much, too much. You may yeah. have to cut this out of the podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Jimmy, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Performance Marketing Unlocked. And you've given us a very detailed uh, 101 on how to unlock the Chinese market. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope you've enjoyed your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of Performance Marketing Unlocked. I am Lucy Shelley, Multimedia Editor at PMW and your host for Performance Marketing Unlocked. In this week's episode, you heard from Jimmy Robinson from Ping Pong Digital and Robin Langford, editor at PMW. If you want to learn more about how to market to and unlock the APAC region, head to performancemarketingworld.com and subscribe today. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you will join me in next week's episode. Thank you very much. Goodbye.